Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, and I run the U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. This week, we're bringing you another extra inning for The Ballpark. Today, we're in conversation with Joseph Sternberg. Joseph Sternberg is a member of the editorial board of The Wall Street Journal, where he writes the political economics column. He's also the author of a new book, The Theft of a Decade, How the Baby Boomers Stole the Millennials' Economic Future. Joseph Sternberg joined us on the 9th of October, 2019, for our U.S. Center event, How Millennial Economics Will Shape Up U.S. Politics. Ahead of the event, we caught up with him to talk about his book, and Millennials' Economic Future. We started by asking him about the stolen decade for millennials that he mentions in his book. So, your new book is called The Theft of a Decade, How the Baby Boomers Stole the Millennials' Economic Future. What do you mean by this stolen decade, and how has it been stolen? Well, I think the way to think about this is actually to go back to the question that motivated me to first start working on this book, which was, uh, who's right in this generational conflict that we seem to have? I mean, what you will discover, uh, particularly in the U.S. and the U.K., I think, is that uh, often millennials and baby boomers are talking past each other about the economy. So baby boomers look at millennials and they see us. I'm, I'm a millennial myself. Uh, the boomers see us as a very spoiled generation that has never had it so good. They grew up with the outsourcing revolution. They grew up with the stagflation of the 70s. They grew up under the shadow of the Vietnam War. They look at millennials and they don't understand why we're always complaining about uh, the economy not working for us. And then millennials uh, look at the world and they say, well, hang on a sec. I mean, it's true that we have a lot of creature comforts, but we are really struggling to establish the kind of economic security that our parents in the boomer generation ended up enjoying. Uh, We're struggling to get ourselves set on the career ladder. We're struggling to climb onto the property ladder. We're struggling to save for our retirement. So, you know, you you end up with this talking past each other where it's almost as if the millennials get frustrated that the boomers don't understand that the economy isn't working uh, and the boomers don't understand why the millennials are so unhappy. And that's really the story I was telling with the theft of a decade. And the conclusion that I reached is that it actually was a first off that the millennials are right in this argument that as spoiled as we can seem on a day to day basis, actually in important ways. Uh, the prospect of economic security has slipped away from us uh, in ways that weren't the case for the boomer generation. Uh, and that this actually was a theft. That This isn't just something that happened. It was a result of certain policy choices that boomers made uh, as voters and as politicians, both before the 2007-2008 financial crisis and especially afterwards. And that was really the story that I was trying to tell with this book, exactly how those bad decisions have created the millennial misery that we're hearing so much about today. So how would you define the term millennial? And what are some of the uniting characteristics or experiences of millennials? Well, that is a really important question. And I'm glad we're able to start there because this is the first thing about the millennial generation that people find so confusing, what they are. Uh, And partly it's because with the boomers, we're used to thinking about having clearly defined starting and end points for that generation. It was people who were born between 1946 at the end of the Second World War uh, and around 1964. Uh, You know, people often use the advent of the birth control pill as the cutoff for the, the boomers. Millennials don't actually have a clearly defined starting point like that. All we have is a middle point, the year 2000. 
I think the most common definition and the one that I use as much as possible in the book is a millennial is anyone who was born between around 1981 and 1996. And so that captures actually the children of the boomers when the boomers were at their own peak childbearing years. Uh, and, it, you know, it turns out to actually be really important also economically once we get into the story of the theft of a decade for a couple reasons. Because first off, you're capturing a very large cohort of people who were coming of age right around the time of the financial crisis and the Great Recession afterwards. So you're going to have a large tranche of people who all happen to be entering the labor market and trying to get entrenched as adults at the same time. And, you know, that's an important part of the story to understand that you had this large group of people, approximately 80 million millennials in the American population, depending on who you ask, that were all living through that experience uh, at about the same time. And, you know, the other important thing to understand about millennials is that we are older than people think we are. You know, college students today here at the LSE and you know other campuses around the world are actually members of Generation Z, uh, the generation that comes after the millennials. The oldest of us millennials, including myself, are almost going to be 40 soon. I mean, I I'm, I'm, was born in 1982, so I'm 37 this year. Uh, and, you know, listeners can't see this, but I do have some gray hair in my beard already. Uh, and that has important implications economically for millennials, too, because it means that we both got hit by this, uh, you know, the double whammy of the fact that we graduated into a bad economy in the aftermath of the financial crisis. And it also means that we're old enough that we have less and less time to try to recover from that before we're hitting the point when we would ordinarily expect to be retiring. What did the 2007-8 financial crisis and the government's policy reactions to it mean for millennials? Well, the key fact in the U.S. for millennials was the fact that the unemployment rate spiked and then it stayed high for a very long time. And you know, one thing that I have discovered as I surveyed the situation of millennials around the world is that each country's millennials are unhappy in a slightly different way. So the story I'm telling here really focuses on the situation of millennials in the U.S. And there, the biggest malfunction was in the job market. So you had a large cohort of people who were planning to enter the, the market, which is always the point in your economic life cycle when you were most vulnerable to downturns right at a time when we were experiencing severe unemployment. And the other key fact about that is that it went on for a long time. Even after the Great Recession was technically over and the economy had started growing again, it grew much more slowly than the U.S. economy uh, had experienced after previous downturns. And so that meant that you had this longer and longer and longer period when you had this cohort of millennials, more and more of them graduating each year, coming into the job market and struggling to get themselves established. And that would show up in a bunch of different ways. It would show up in the difficulty of finding entry-level work, partly because older workers were pushing down into what had previously been the entry level of the economy as older workers were trying to keep their heads above water in, in the downturn. I think it showed up in a certain number of millennials who probably didn't show up as unemployed because they were pursuing additional education almost as a, a form of holding tank to, to keep themselves busy and try to improve their employment prospects if the job market didn't work for them immediately when they graduated from high school or when they got their undergraduate degree. You know, and I think that the strain in the labor market then contributes to a lot of other problems that you hear about now. So, I mean, one very simple point is it's awfully hard to buy a house if you don't have a stable income. So you end up with a lot of stress on things like the housing market. It's very difficult to save for retirement if you don't have a job. That contributes to 
a lot of financial stress uh, for millennials. Uh, and then it also contributes to things like the student debt crisis that we have in America, which I think is an interaction between the fact that policymakers of the boomer generation and a lot of millennials ourselves thought that more education was the thing that would protect us from the job market ravages of the Great Recession, only to discover that we ended up with a lot of the debt that we were going to struggle to pay off in the, the continued slack in the, the labor market. So I think that those were the economic effects, and the policy environment was really bad for dealing with that. So, for example, you had a lot of uh, emphasis from policymakers, at the, you know, both the Treasury Department, the elected part of the government, uh, and also the Federal Reserve, on trying to put a floor under the housing market, because the, the boomer politicians thought that was where the economic crisis had begun, that was where it was going to have to end. Uh, the problem is that a lot of policies like the ultra-low interest rates or the quantitative easing that were designed to, in part to help pump up the housing market end up inflating the price of that asset beyond where millennials who are struggling through this labor market will be able to afford it. You did have a certain amount of emphasis from uh, boomer policymakers on trying to look at more education as a pathway out. And so you would continue to see this emphasis on trying to make it possible for more and more people to borrow more and more money so that they could get education in the hope that uh, that would improve the employment prospects for millennials, provide some kind of insurance or, or an inoculation against the effects of the Great Recession. And yet we, we now know in retrospect that that wasn't true. And this was a recession where it might actually be the case that people who had graduated from college were affected just as badly as workers who hadn't, which would be a, a new development if you know, further research bears that out. So you had a, a Really, you know, I hesitate to use the, the phrase a perfect storm because it's such a cliche, but that really was what was happening here. You had this huge generation that needed to be able to find employment because there were so many millennials in the American population to start. You had the worst uh, financial crisis uh, and recession that we had had in 80 years since the Great Depression. It went on for a lot longer than these downturns usually do. And it came at a, a time when you had a bunch of policies uh, interacting with things like the housing market, uh, with the market for higher education in ways that turned out to really be bad for millennials and continue to be bad for millennials even today. In your book, you say that millennials are their own parents' retirement plans. What do you mean by this? Oh, gosh. Well, there there are a couple different dimensions that you can think about that uh, along. But, you know, th and this is actually a, a good entryway, I, in, I think, into thinking about what intergenerational fairness actually means. Because, you know, go back to this point I made in the beginning about the generations talking past each other. I mean, the boomers are absolutely correct to say, well, we are not going to hand anything to millennials on a silver platter. And I'm not sure that that's really what millennials are asking for anyway. I think what you actually need to think about is kind of a fair shake, making sure that each generation has the same opportunities or better you know, than what was available to previous generations. And this business of retirement and the fiscal policies surrounding that, also some of the labor market policies surrounding that are a good example of where this is misfiring. So, you know, you look at one of the big uh, sources of stress on retirement and old age finance in general are going to be old age entitlements. In America, it's Social Security, which is the pension program, and then Medicare, which is the government-run uh, health insurance program for people older than 65. And, you know, boomers have spent most of their uh, politically active career resisting any attempt to reform those entitlements. 
Well, the problem is that we have not had a generation that is going to live as long as the boomers will end up living, potentially in as poor health as they'll be in. As you start getting into issues with you know, various forms of heart disease, uh, you know, all, treatments for all of these ailments that you know, are a problem when you are fortunate enough to live to the ripe old age of 85 or 90 that weren't a problem when you were only living to about 65. Well, you know, I think that one problem is that the, the way the finances of these programs are set up, that kind of burden without some kind of reform places bigger fiscal demands on millennial taxpayers as we continue in the labor force and as uh, boomers drop out of it and are not uh, you know, paying income tax, for example, anymore. Uh, and you know, this is an example of kind of how you can think about fairness from the perspective of saying, well, paying these benefits for the boomers is going to require uh, millennials to pay a certain percentage of our lifetime earnings to support these programs. And that percentage that we're going to have to pay is going to be much higher than the boomers were ever prepared to pay themselves. If you look at the tax policies that they implemented or the benefits policies that they put in place, uh, is that fair? You know, I, I think that there's a good case that it's not. And, uh, you know, that also is going to end up playing out in various ways at the uh, personal level, where you're going to have a lot of tension about the distribution of assets within families because, uh, you know, boomers are going to end up owning their homes for a lot longer. You know, one consequence of the fact that they're going to live a lot longer is the fact that it will be a lot longer before their millennial children benefit from inheritances. Now, I, don't get me wrong. I think that's a terrific thing. I love my parents. I, you know, I hope they live for another 25 or 30 years. Uh, I have a grandfather who's still going strong in his mid-90s, so that we should all be so lucky. But, you know, this does create issues that you really need to be able to think through in terms of policies for how are you going to make sure that the burdens, the, the enormous benefits of this longevity create, uh, that those burdens don't fall disproportionately on the younger generations. Millennials are now well into their 30s. How are they being reflected in politics now? Well, I think that the uh, simple answer, and I don't mean this at all as a dodge, is that we have no idea. So the, the common uh, theory about millennials in politics that you hear is that we're all socialists. Uh, you can point to a lot of polls that suggest that millennials have, uh, you know, show a great skepticism of capitalism, have a great support for socialism. You would assume from that that uh, we are all going to be very left-wing. And I think on some issues we probably will be what would, well, it'll depend on whether you want to think about it as being left-wing or more libertarian, right? Uh, so I think that certainly millennials tend to be somewhat more libertarian uh, on a lot of social issues uh, than our parents' generation was. Um, I think that on a bunch of other contentious issues uh, that really riled boomer-era politics in America are going to be non-issues for millennials. Immigration is a good example of this. Uh, you can see even now in the Trump administration that immigration is a very polarizing issue for a lot of boomer Americans. But millennials feel very differently about it. And one reason for that is that we are a generation of immigrants. One reason that there are so many of us that we are evenly matched numerically with the boomers in the American population is because we have a higher proportion of immigrants or children of immigrants uh, among millennials. So, you know, that kind of issue isn't going to be so much of a factor, uh, I think, in millennial politics moving forward. Trade polls suggest that actually we tend to be free traders, uh, which is a little bit at odds with this uh, socialist narrative. 
And in fact, when you start digging into some of the polling data on attitudes toward entrepreneurship or specific things that we like or don't like about what the government actually does on a daily basis, I mean, it's hard to support this claim that we are all dyed-in-the-wool socialists and our views are never going to change. I think that the key thing is that we just want something that's different. I think that there's an intuition on the part of a lot of millennials that the economy that we have inherited from the boomers isn't working, and also that the rules that the boomers gave us to be successful have failed us. So those boomer rules were things like, you know, keep your nose down in school, get that four-year undergraduate bachelor's degree, you know, climb onto the career ladder really quickly and get started in a career, uh, buy a house because that's the thing that's going to catapult you into middle-class economic security, save for your retirement and your, in America, we call them 401k plans, the personal retirement account. Well, guess what? I mean, those things haven't worked for millennials when we've tried them, you know, for example, with education, or they aren't possible for us. Uh, as with the retirement savings that you can't do if you don't have that steady salary job with benefits, right? So I think that there's a lot of millennial frustration, uh, both with the fact that the economy is broken and with the fact that boomers don't seem to have any good answers other than continuing to try to double down on all of the old policy ideas that worked for them, but clearly are not working for us. Uh, and I think that right now that is pushing a lot of millennials very reasonably to grab the first alternative that's available. And that happens to be politicians like Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn or you know Elizabeth Warren or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who have always been outside of the political mainstream. I think that that is a bigger selling point than the fact that they are specifically on the political left. I think that it's just that they are different. They are saying things that are completely outside of the norm for traditional boomer politicians. And it sounds even fresher when you compare it to a politician like Donald Trump, right? So, you know, I am a free market conservative. Um, you know, at various times in the past, I, I will you know, go on the record saying that I have voted for Republican candidates. You know, in America right now, some conservatives are uh, pro-Trump Republicans, others are never Trump Republicans. I discovered that I became kind of a Trump who conservative as I was working on this, just because he is such a boomer in terms of his approach to trade, which is a debate that has been riling the boomers since the 80s. Uh, in his approach to immigration, which is completely out of step with where millennials think the, the country should be on this issue. Millennials are both the right and the left. Uh, on his personal morality, which is really out of step with what a lot of millennials hope for out of politicians these days. You know, I think that the problem in American politics right now from a millennial perspective is that you have some politicians on the far left who are completely outside of the mainstream, and then the other party has hitched its cart to the horse of like this ultimate boomer president who is just incapable of delivering any you know, policy message that addresses the serious concerns that millennials have right now. Can millennials begin to solve the problems they face themselves, or do they need more action from governments? Well, I think that, you know, there are going to be a couple of dimensions that you have to think of in order to get at that. And I'm going to say at the outset, uh, people who are listening to this uh, should definitely go out and buy the book. I, I, you know, as an author, I am never going to discourage that. And I hope that, uh, you know, what I have offered in the book is a clear explanation of the economic problems that millennials face. But when it comes to solutions, 
Uh, I think we're all kind of stymied right now. I mean, my approach to that was that you have to diagnose the problem correctly before you can even start talking about solutions. Now, based on my own diagnosis of the, the problem, I can offer a couple of thoughts on the way we are going to have to look for a solution. One first order problem is going to be political, and it's going to go back to the demographics of the American electorate right now and the fact that actually we find ourselves in this very unusual situation historically where you have two very large generations or cohorts with very different economic interests jostling around with each other in the electorate right now. And that's going to go on for a long time. Uh, because I think that, you know, the boomers are still going to be voting uh, in large numbers for a couple decades to come, that numerically they are about evenly matched with millennials. So one challenge that we're going to have to face up to is managing the politics of this kind of generational changeover when we are all jostling around together at the same time. So that's that's an unusual situation that's very different from the kind of situation that the boomers themselves were in when they were just this huge you know, bulging generation that moved its way through the American population, and there wasn't really anything like them before. So that's going to be the political challenge. Now, the policy challenge then, I think, becomes, first off, understanding what fairness actually means, right? And I've tried to hint at that on issues like entitlement reform or fiscal policy, where I think that one way we are going to have to think about fairness is not just in the absolute numbers of dollars and cents, but you also have to think about what is the proportion of the boomers' own productive efforts that they were prepared to devote to these programs versus what is the proportion of millennials' productive efforts over our lifetime that we would be expected to pay into them. And are we prepared to do that? Is it fair for the boomers to ask us to have to pay much more into the system than the boomers themselves did, or than we can realistically expect to get out of it at the end of our working lives. And, you know, on from that, you're going to end up with a whole bunch of, uh, you know, political fairness issues about this, because that then is also going to affect our political choice or our freedom of action on a lot of these issues. So, Right now in America, we have millennials who are starting to get themselves elected to Congress. AOC is a big example. She's not the only one. In fact, the, there is a millennial Republican in Congress right now uh, representing Wisconsin. What is the biggest power that the U.S. Congress has? It's the power of the purse. And yet millennials who get elected to Congress right now are not going to be able to exercise that power if we have to devote so much government revenue each year to old age entitlement payments for the boomer generation. And so you then think about, you know, AOC has made a lot of headlines with her Green New Deal plan, which if ever passed into law would involve the expenditure of a lot of tax money. Well, you know, I think that's a bad policy idea, but I might get outvoted on that. I mean, that's how politics works. The reality, though, is that even if millennials decide that we do want to move to the left and embrace that kind of policy, we will not have the resources to do the things that matter to us on climate change or on student loan forgiveness uh, or any of these other priorities that might matter to us if we haven't been able to figure out how to even the balance on some of these commitments to our parents. So I think that that kind of fairness uh, or distributional issue is going to loom large in American politics over the next couple of decades. 
I think that, you know, there's going to be a need for more creative thinking about uh, the structure of the economy. How do you make sure that the labor market properly fires on all cylinders for all comers, including young people? How do you make sure that your economy isn't skewing toward the old or to certain favored industries at the expense of others? I think that these are a lot of the challenges. I don't know what the solutions are going to be. Uh, but I do think that this is the kind of debate that you're going to start seeing the more millennials become active in the process. Are millennials' woes just a U.S. issue? Or are there similarities in other parts of the world? Well, one of the things that I found uh, fascinating once I realized that this was the case, and is also really alarming if you think about it, is the fact that so if you survey uh, countries across the developed world, I mean, whether it's the U.S., whether it's Canada, whether it's any of a range of different European countries, whether it's Japan, whether it's South Korea, you will discover that there is a wide variety of approaches to tax policy. There are a wide variety of approaches to social welfare policy. Uh, there are a lot of different forms of housing policy and education policy, a lot of different fiscal policies, a lot of different you know, economic structures, corporate governance systems. All of these things are different. The one thing no one has figured out how to do yet is this handoff between the boomer generation and the millennial generation, and it's really remarkable. Now, I mean, you know, that, that said, each uh, country's millennials are unhappy in a slightly different way. So, for example, here in the UK, where we're having this conversation right now, uh, the job market wasn't quite the malfunction for millennials in the way that it was in America. Um, I think there are different, somewhat more subtle problems, but at least most millennials here did eventually find their way onto the career ladder. The problem is the housing market. Uh, which was a product of constrained housing supply and a British job market uh, that increasingly is drawing uh, millennials, and particularly millennials who have invested a lot already in education, into large urban areas like London where housing is least affordable. So, uh, you know, housing here is more of an issue in the UK than it actually is in the US. In the US, the housing crisis you know, millennial, American millennials buy houses in a lower proportion than boomers did at this stage in their lifespan. Uh, but I think that housing doesn't feel quite so crisis-y in America because, you know, we're big. We've never had problems with land shortages. You know, you look at a country like Germany, and what's interesting there is that it's going to be a fiscal problem for them. You know, they didn't experience the same kind of strain in the job market that Americans did. Uh, they don't seem to be experiencing the same kind of strain in the housing market that the British are. And their problem is that they have managed to balance their budget for now. They're very proud of the Schwarze Null or this black zero in the federal government budget there. The problem is that they have not reformed the old age entitlements. In fact, they've moved backwards over the past few years. They've made the programs a little more generous. They've lowered the retirement age for a lot of boomers who are going to be retiring. And that is going to create enormous fiscal burdens that German millennials are going to have to confront in the decades to come. Um, in Japan, you have kind of a combination. Anything that can go wrong for a millennial anywhere has gone wrong for millennials in Japan, right? Uh, you have the bad housing market. You have the problematic uh, jo you know, job market related to this two-track system that they have where the older boomer era employees get these plush contracts with all of the great benefits and millennial Japanese workers are on all of these part-time, very insecure contracts and struggle to buy housing, struggle to form families, struggle to, to prepare for the future. 
So, I, you know, it's going to be a debate for everyone. It is puzzling if you think about it, that people haven't been able to get this right anywhere. And that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Check out this feed for the recording of Joseph Sternberg's recent U.S. Center event, How Millennial Economics Will Shape Up U.S. Politics. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson and Michaela Herman. The Ballpark Podcast is supported by the Phelan family. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all of our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter.lse.ac.uk, or you can send us a tweet at lse underscore us, and tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening.